Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Tonight and next week, we are in the studio with one of the most extraordinary adventurers of our time, John Turk. John and I are friends, and I welcome him into the studio for recording on numerous occasions. Tonight on The Trail Less Traveled, John's going to take us on many expeditions, but specifically circumnavigating Ellesmer Island and paddling around Cape Horn in a canoe. So sit back, relax, and join us on an audible adventure around the world with John Turk. John, tell us about your childhood. Where did you grow up, and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? (laughs) I grew up in suburban Connecticut. We lived in the woods in in a small woodlot. I go back there now, and it's something you can circumnavigate in about three-quarters of an hour if you push it in an hour if you lolly-doll along. So, you know, it wasn't like a great, like the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness or anything, but it was a woodland with with lakes and so on and so forth. And I grew up loving that sort of environment. My family was very, 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 very traditional. And my mother wanted me to be a doctor and my father wanted to be a chemist and so on. So there was a little bit of a juxtaposition there between my parents wanting me to succeed in the real world as they knew it. And I was developing a love for these woodlands. John, in 1971, you earned a Ph.D. in organic chemistry at the University of Colorado. The same year, in honor of Earth Day 1, you co-authored the first environmental science textbook in the United States. It sold 100,000 copies and spearheaded the development of environmental science curricula in North America. According to your website, you were trained as a scientist, and in the beginning you merely considered your travels to be a series of physical challenges to overcome and goals to attain. How has your perspective on these travels changed over the past 40 years? (laughs) Well, I've written three books about this, uh, Cold Oceans in the Wake of the Joman and the Raven's Gift. We, we, grow up in the, we grow up in this technological world where th- we achieve things. Uh, Aboriginal people didn't look at the world that way so much. I mean, you have to hunt. A, a successful hunt is an achievement. But they didn't look at going places and doing things as so much of a sequence of achievements. It was more of a, you know, just living. And yeah, so I started off thinking, oh, if I succeed at an adventure, then I'll get sponsorship and I'll make money and I'll become a professional adventurer and, you know, I'll have a career. And as life has gone on, that concept of a career, it's such a delicate balance because you still have to earn a living. You still have to buy peas and carrots when you go to the grocery store. But if you spend enough time in the wilderness, I think those concepts kind of meld away. And and for me, anyway, it's gradually been going into this spiritual relationship with nature, which the journey the, itself has been very long. John, what was your first large-scale expedition? Huh. Well, that's hard to know. Uh, when I was 17 and my brother was 12, uh, we drove north. I had a battered old international pickup and went down the Allagash River in northern Maine. And I had this bright idea that we wouldn't bring any food, that we'd hunt and fish for ourselves. And uh, it, the whole thing turned into this, you know, a 17-year-old and his 12-year-old brother going down this Two or three week journey with no food. It became quite an epic. We still talk about it. The Allagash is, is something that's run commercially all the time. My first major world class expedition was to attempt to sea kayak around Cape Horn solo. 
And of course, I didn't make it. I made some serious mistakes in in understanding the weather patterns and ended up swimming in the Antarctic Ocean with kayak broken in three pieces, one dislocated shoulder, losing all my gear, swimming around with one arm. So it ended up in a bit of a debacle. What have you learned about weather now? <laughs> well, you know, I'm not dead yet. The, the, the whole thing is, and I think about this a lot because over the years, many of my dear friends and, and my wife have died by making mistakes or getting unlucky. And why am I alive? Is it because I have learned to make good decisions or because I've been lucky at some critical points where I have made bad decisions? To be honest, it's a little of both. It's not just about weather. The wonderful thing about extreme expeditions is that the line between living and dying is very, very fine in understanding, appreciating, recognizing the fine points of the environment you're in, whether it be the mini current lines in a whitewater river or the mini layers in a snowpack, that's the difference between stable snow and an avalanche, or seeing the signs in the sky that a storm is coming or not. All of those things, being aware of all of those things, is quite literally the difference between living and dying, and and to be on that edge as repeated over and over throughout your life, I think is a wondrous way to live. So, John, the first time you went, you tried to circumnavigate Cape Horn was in 1979, and then you went back in 95. That's correct, yeah. And the first time, you ended up swimming, and your kayak broke into three pieces. Right. Let's talk about that expedition, (laughs) and then when you went back in 95. You bet, you bet. Well, the whole concept of small boats in the ocean is you have the ocean, which is one of the most powerful, dynamic environments on the earth. And the question is, how small a boat can you negotiate this ocean in? The idea being that you put yourself into this physical vulnerability intentionally and What keeps you alive is your relationship with the environment, your own body. You don't have that many props. It's just the smallest kind of watercraft that's conceivably possible. So my first open sea journey was to travel in a canoe, a Grumman aluminum canoe, which, of course, nobody in their right mind would ever do a long kayak journey or a long sea journey in a Grumman aluminum canoe. But we, we went 1,200 miles from Vancouver to Glacier Bay, Alaska. And that really opened my eyes. I went, whoa, this is the, the ocean with all this power. If you embrace the vulnerability, if you accept it, if you come to one with it, you can be in the most powerful piece of ocean in the smallest boat. And to put those two together, it was like, okay, Cape Horn. Cape Horn is is known as the most ferocious, windswept, big wave piece of ocean in the world. Many, many, many huge ships have sunk off of Cape Horn. There's an old adage, a sailor's tale, that if you've gone around Cape Horn under sail, you can toast the queen with one foot on the table, you know, that sort of legendary thing. So can I go around this this piece of water in a kayak and Now many, many people have done it. In 1979, that was a while ago. Uh, It had been done, but it was less of a – the development of all sports hadn't reached the same point as it was today. So it was considered a more radical concept in those days. And so I went down. I talked around. I wasn't a kayaker. I wasn't in the sea kayak community. I lived in a mountain town. I tried to get people to come with me, and nobody would come. And I thought, wow, if this expedition is so scary to people that nobody will join me, it has to be a really good one. So I went alone in a a full boat, and I paddled along along the west coast of Chile. And all this environment of extreme winds, hurricane force winds coming in, extreme rain in parts of that uh, west coast there, it rains an inch a day on the average, and extraordinary beauty, extraordinary beauty. And I was alone, and I had never, you know, most of us, 
we're never alone, really alone, for more than a few hours ever in our lives. And I, I spent 30 days, 29 days exactly, without talking to anybody. And I got to be familiar with the animals that sharpens your senses and all of that. And it was a life-changing experience in the fact that, look, I mean, let's talk about the issue from a larger point of view. I grew up as a chemist. My parents were academics. Everybody expected I was going to get a job in a chemistry lab somewhere and, you know, be a good citizen. (laughs) There's something in me said, no, that's not me. I'm not critical of it. I'm just saying it wasn't me. So I started dabbling in in other things and, and starting to learn this whole new range of skills. I mean, I knew how to run an organic mass spectrometer. I knew how to do computers, but I didn't know how to stay alive in the out of doors. And I moved to Telluride, uh, Colorado. I started learning how to ski, how to ice climb. And each of those activities puts you in this relationship with nature. So I kayaked down the west coast of Chile, and I did great, and I got big storms, and I managed it and hung out in a tent for three days by myself and just had a marvelous time. Then when I got close to Cape Horn, I started thinking, oh, man, you know, if I do this, Again, that whole sponsorship thing, I'm going to become famous, ego, me, 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 this is really great, push, 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 push. And I've looked at the photographs since then. There was lenticular clouds building in the sky. I saw them. I photographed them. I ignored them. And then I got caught in this big confluence storm. You have the Atlantic, the Pacific, and the Antarctic oceans coming together, a triple point of weather, a triple point of ocean currents, and I hit that, and I was just totally blown out of the water. I wasn't prepared for it emotionally or mentally. Uh, I got blown up against a rock, a full boat, a soft-shell folding kayak. The kayak broke into three pieces. Everything I owned, which isn't your possessions but your survival, spills out into the sea. I had a trick shoulder. I dislocated my left shoulder, and then I found myself literally in the Antarctic Ocean, swimming with one dislocated shoulder in an uninhabited place with basically get to shore, and if you get to shore, how are you going to stay alive? How did you stay alive, John? (laughs) (laughs) Well, once again, I didn't die. Uh, I I swam to shore with my one arm. I, I realized that I needed two arms, so I set my shoulder myself, which was painful, but In that kind of situation, you have to do it. So I set my shoulder. Then I saw some gear floating around out there. I did not want to go back in the water. I was hypothermic. But I made a decision, you know, you got to go back. You need some gear. You need something. So I went back in. There were some float bags floating around in the surf. I managed to retrieve a tent, my sleeping bag, which was totally soaked, and a little food. The tent was critical because it was raining and the wind was blowing. So even if your sleeping bag is wet, if you can stay out of the rain and stay out of the wind, you have a chance. I spent that night in a very, very wet sleeping bag, shivering myself and my bag and my clothes warm and had a little food and, and then proceeded to walk north. There was a Chilean military base to the north and... Uh, And then I had this great adventure, you know, crossing rivers. And I didn't have anything like a pack, so I had these dry bags sort of draped around my shoulders and around my neck and whatnot. And I had all these rivers to swim and no food to eat. And, yeah, so uh, blah, blah, blah. And then I get on this, not a mountain, like a hilltop, and I'm looking down at this little Chilean naval base. And I remember sitting there for a long time, like – after having this cathartic experience and you're hungry and you're cold and you're exhausted and you've you've been on this edge for these number of days by yourself and almost being a letdown that, oh, I'm saved, now I go down, they'll feed me and give me coffee and stuff and a ride home. But not really a letdown, but, but you, you know, you, you've had this intensity by yourself and yeah, of course you're miserable and you're, you know, you wish you could be saved sooner and you wish all these things. But in reality, 
it's the most amazing experience. And when you finally realize, okay, I'm going to go down and it's going to be all comfortable and they're all going to take care of me and I'll call my dad and everything like that. Everything's going to be okay. It's almost a letdown. (laughs) John, what would you say is the crux of kayaking Cape Horn? Is it all difficult or is there one vital point? No crux, uh, Mandela. It's, It's reading the weather. And the crux to all ocean kayaking, because the ocean is the mother of all mothers. It can be any piece of ocean in the world can be blissfully calm or ferociously turbulent. And the idea, the game in ocean kayaking is to just not get out, get caught out there when it's really nasty, unless you, you know, really know what you're doing and really are looking for that. John, you are a huge fan of The Grateful Dead. On tonight's show, we are going to play three of your favorite songs. What dead song reminds you of your early career as a professional adventurer? Well, (laughs) it's not that one dead song reminds me, you know, that's been stuck in my head. The concept is that in the late 60s, when the hippies were running around doing all the hippie things, you know, we had a philosophy of life that our our art, our relationships with people, our relationships with community, our relationships with nature were the most important thing. Our possessions and our status in the world and our jobs and how fancy a car we have, those were not important. And so when I think of my adventure, my career as an adventurer, I think of those days and those voices that spoke to us that said, follow your inner self. And the Grateful Dead certainly were that. So, I mean, the three songs I picked out here are Trucking, Sugar Magnolia, Friend of the Devil, and later Ripples in Still Water. It reminds me of an era and a spirit of a community of a people that really told me, it's okay. Your mother and your father want you to get a job in a university somewhere and have a career and a family and live in a cul-de-sac home. That's wonderful. That's not me. I'm not doing that. What song do you want to play first? Okay, let's let's go with Sugar Magnolia. Awesome. Back to Mandela and the Trail Less Traveled. An adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. We're in the studio tonight with National Geographic Adventurer of the Year 2012, John Turk. John, in the summer of 2011, Eric Boomer and you circumnavigated Ellesmere Island a total of 1,485 miles in 104 days. I voted for you as one of National Geographic's top 10 adventure athletes of 2012. You won the Expedition of the Year Award for this circumnavigation at the Outdoor Retailer Show in Salt Lake. Please tell us about this expedition. (laughs) In five words or less, or do I get (laughs) ten? Okay. Well, first of all, I think to set the stage is you have to understand that a boomer was 27 years old. I was 67. We were 40, 40 years apart. We were perfect strangers. I was actually planning to do the trip with Tyler Bratt, whom I understand you're interviewing next week. And then Tyler went and jumped a 100-foot waterfall and broke his back. And it wasn't that – I don't mean to say that Boomer was, um, you know, the second choice. He wasn't. Um, We had already incorporated him into our journey. But I knew Tyler. I didn't know Boomer. So here we are, two perfect strangers, a generation or more apart, sitting out on this journey. I was, you know, 67 years old, 66 years old, whatever it was. And I'd I'd lived this life of adventure. I'd done what I'd done and not done what I didn't do. And I felt like I wanted to go out there one more time and go big one more time. After a while, your body does does shut down. Part of it, and I hope we'll talk about this later in the show, I had spent five years off and on in Siberia with a shaman, Mulanot, an old shaman woman, who really told me, taught me, showed me that the journey to the other world is through nature. 
She told me at one point, John, you're a lousy traveler in the spirit world, but you're a really good traveler in this world. And so if you want to go to the other world, you have to do it in the physical realm. And I wanted to go to the other world because every time I've gone there, it's been a really great place to be. So you have to do it. You have to push your you have to push your body to the edge of death to go to the other world. And I mean, Jesus went into the desert for forty days, and Moses went into the desert, and Buddha went into the desert. This is an old concept. This is nothing new. So I wanted to do it in the polar ice because that's an environment I love. I chose Ellesmere for two reasons. One is I had been traveled there with my wife in 1988 on the East Coast, and she passed away in an avalanche in 1995. And it was a way of, oh, you never come to completion or finalization about that, but it was another way to say goodbye to her. You you have to do that over and over again uh, when something like that happens. And then back to the ego thing and the sponsors and the money, um, polar historian Jerry Koblenko called it the last great undone polar expeditions. So I went, yeah, we, we ought to do that. <laughs> okay, 1,485 miles, 104 days. Why 100 days? 100 days is mandated by the temperature, the climate, the movement of ice, the availability of food drops, all of those technical things gives you about 100 days to do it in. That's 15 miles a day, half a marathon a day, every day, day in, day out, over some of the roughest terrain on earth. And rescue is, you know, it's not impossible. We do live in the 21st century, but it becomes very difficult if you get caught out on the ice and there's nowhere for an aircraft to land a fixed wing and then you need a helicopter, then you need to be ferrying helicopter fuel. Rescue is not a very good option out there. So we did the trip. We skied on solid ice. We walked through waist-deep slush for days on end. We crawled we skied, we walked, we crawled, we, oh yeah, it was a kayak trip. We paddled, we portaged, and moved through many aspects of this changing environment. I like to think of it as the ice is this, it's not like Como Lake or something. This is the ocean that's frozen over. And the movement of the ice in my mind, in my dreams, is the movement of continental plates. It's these massive planetary-sized movements of solid over this liquid floating array. And it's very much speeded up compared with continental plates. But you're in this continental planetary-sized force. This is the big time. (laughs) And the forces are just humongous. At, At one point, you have these big chunks of ice being driven down through this narrow strait. You have the whole ocean You have the Arctic Ocean being pushed by a current, compressed, huge chunks of ice, many miles in diameter, six feet thick, all trying to squeeze into a a strait 12 miles wide, and this massive commotion that goes on in there. And so this concept of being vulnerable on purpose, embracing it, enjoying the magic, putting yourself in the environment, and then staying alive by your ability to flow with it, to be absorbed by it, to accept it. And, uh, you know, (laughs) it doesn't get any better than that. You did a lot of portaging. Well, yeah, portaging is a relative word. We started out when the ocean was frozen solid, and that was intentional because in the fall, when the ocean starts to freeze up again, there's a time when the ocean is too, the ice is too thick to paddle through, but too thin to walk on. So if you're too late in the season, you're hooped. You can't move at all. You're just stuck, and you're just going to stay there and freeze to death, death or starve to death or both. So you leave early to be traveling on solid ice. And then gradually the ice starts to break up. And ice in the Arctic doesn't melt like an ice cube in a glass of Coke. It it breaks up. The It gets warm and there's little weaknesses in the ice and it cracks and breaks and then starts moving around and banging into each other. And this is an extremely dynamic and very dangerous environment. 
and then gradually the ice opens up. It flushes south with the currents, uh, the edges melt, and you have open water. So when you say portage, we walked in some form or another eight or 900 miles of the 1,500-mile trip. Depending on your definition, it was sledging, Arctic sledging, or portaging, whatever you want to call it. We only actually portaged one day, and that was a big chunk of ice had impacted against the coast and had pushed into these impassable pressure ridges. Just, you know, you have this ice that just gets rammed into the coast with such terrific force that it gets turned on edge and you have these big endless knife-edge chunks of ice and they're all moving and grinding and crashing and falling and uh, totally impossible to walk over. But it was relatively short, just a few miles, and then there was going to be some more open water. So that day we actually broke the boats down and carried our gear on land and carried it around this chunk of ice. So that was the only portage, but dragging the boats on ice was almost a thousand miles. And what was the average temperature? Uh, Average temperature. It started out in May when we started May 7th, cold, 20 below. And that's, I like to say it was the same temperature as a backpacking trip or a ski touring trip in British Columbia in January. Temperatures from, oh, I think in Celsius, you know, in the teens down to minus 20 in the beginning. And then gradually it warmed up. I talked about the ice melting. So it warmed up above freezing. And I don't know, one day for a short while, Boomer traveled around without a shirt on at all. I, I, you know, I was too cold for that. I had a, a light shirt. But, you know, maybe in the 50s, plus 50s. And then towards the end, it started to cool down. Winter was starting to come in. We were starting to lose our sunlight and it was starting to drop below freezing many times in the late afternoon or once. A couple times we paddled at night because of the weather. The ocean was starting to freeze up again, and you'd paddle, and you'd be pushing uh, this newly formed ice, what I call the tinkle ice, because it tinkles when you, when you paddle through it. The, the ocean freezes in the fall. Oh, reliably, you know, by early October or something, it starts freezing up. And then it stays frozen all winter and into the spring. Now, in May, you have 24-hour daylight, but the angle of the sun is low, and there's so much ice, it's so reflective that you lose all of the solar heat, or most of it. And the ocean is is frozen. It's about six feet. The ice is roughly about six feet thick. And then... That ice, as you progress in the seasons into June and into July, it the temperature gets above freezing, and the snow on top of the ice melts, forming pools of water on top of the ice. And sometimes we'd have to walk through these, oh, ankle-deep to knee-deep to mid-thigh-deep lakes of slush water on top of ice. And then the the heat and the water on the ice causes in the wave action underneath causes the ice to weaken and start to break into chunks and then gradually it it you have a mixture of water and ice and you paddle kind of slalom through the ice so you started walking and then you began paddling when the time was yeah, right we started we roughly we walked for 850 miles and then we started paddling and, and how did you know when it was time to start paddling? Was it pretty obvious, or did you start hearing cracking noises? You said it didn't, doesn't crack. Just How did you know when it was time to, okay. to, to not risk walking anymore, John? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a really good question. Thank you. Okay, there's two things going on. You're changing your position. You're moving all the time. So you're in different parts of the ocean with different currents, and you're also changing time. You're progressing in the season. So as we were going into July and kind of into mid-July, the ocean was definitely, you knew it was getting ready to go. Like I say, it doesn't melt. Like you don't just fall through the ice because the ice is still six feet thick, but it starts breaking and moving And then you see little bits of open water between these big ice pans. Mm -hmm. And these big ice pans, they can be anywhere from the size of a baseball 
to the size of a football field to the size of 10 city blocks. They vary in, in hugely. But now, just at that point that we were reaching this warm, this critical warming period, we rounded the northeast corner of Ellesmere into the Nari Strait. And that's where you have a current driving the entire North Pole ice pack, this whole ocean of broken ice, into this strait 12 miles wide. So you have this incredible compression. So what's going on is the ice is breaking apart, smashing into each other, being driven by currents. You know, you're walking along in the beginning, la-di-da-di-da-di-da. It might be a lot of work, but it's just la-di-da-di-da-di-da, dragging over this solid, solid ice, like walking on land. And now all of a sudden, your world becomes dynamic. And it's moving. They're smashing into each other. They're crashing. They're cracking. They're groaning. They're banging, showering ice crystals in the air. There's nothing subtle about this. You don't miss it. You don't go... You know, you'd have to, yeah, it's right there in your face. It's making noise. And all of a sudden, it's a total game changer. You go, whoa, let's get to shore. Let's stop. Let's set up our tent. Let's look at this. And we basically spent 17 days averaging. I think we did 17 miles in 17 days because this was so dynamic and so scary. And several times we'd go out into it and then just get terrified you know, it's like, whoa, you know, let's get to shore really quick. It's a and then you get to shore and you go, whoa, that, was a, that wasn't so good, you know, where you're going to have to. And then you sit there and you think for a couple of days. And then you think, well, we're going to starve to death because we don't have that much food. Or winter's going to come in and we're going to freeze to death. Or we're going to get eaten by a polar bear or something. We can't stay here. And then we go back out into it, and then we get scared and come back, and so on and so forth. It's The Trail Less Traveled with Mandela. John, over the decades, you have paddled around the South Pacific and Cape Point. Please tell us about your expeditions across the North Pacific when you befriended a shaman. Oh, boy. Now, that, that covers two books. I've written two books to answer that question, In the Wake of the Joman and the Raven's Gift. I decided to paddle across the North Pacific in a production sea kayak. And and, and there was several reasons for this. One was to cross an ocean. We've talked earlier about intentionally being vulnerable, going out there and doing it for the fun of it. And when you think of tasks, of, of goals, of expeditions, crossing an ocean is certainly a big goal. And then once you're going to cross an ocean, you may as well cross the Pacific because it's the biggest ocean. But all joking aside, there's an obvious route around the Pacific from Central Asia to Alaska. And that follows the Kuril Islands and then the Siberian coast. So I was looking at this route from a technical point of view And then all of a sudden, I see in the paper that quite by accident, some students watching a speedboat race found the skeleton of this man, 9,600 years old, who was a Central Asian, who was, by his facial features, he was not a direct ancestor of the modern American Indians. And he had come, he and his people had come to North America. And the the anthropologist, after studying this guy and a lot of other remains, concluded that Central Asian seafaring people, the ancestors of the Polynesians, okay, so part of this group became the Polynesians and became the greatest seafarers ever. And another part of the group, which is less well-known, sailed north and sailed from Central East Central Asia north along the Pacific, North Pacific Rim to North America and colonized in North America. So what I saw as a technical route that was very doable, Aboriginal people 10,000 years ago also saw as a technical route very doable. So I made that journey from Japan to Alaska. It took two years, and that was the two months the first year and four months the second year, 3,000 miles 
along the Siberian coast. That's a whole book. But along the way, okay, we're paddling along, and we had been held up by the ice and this and that, and we were making slow progress. So we're kind of getting worried the ocean's going to freeze up again before we get to Alaska. This was the second year now. And we come by this village of Vivenka, and we were going, oh, it'd be nice to stop and, you know, get a good meal and this and that. But no, no, we could, you know, make it farther. And all of a sudden, this storm comes up out of nowhere. Like, there was no indication on my barometer watch, no lenticular clouds, nothing. <gasps> this big storm comes up. So we go, okay, 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 let's go to the village. And we go to the village, <laughs> go through the surf. And this woman walks up, the Koryak woman, and she says, John... Misha, it's so good to see you. We were expecting you. The grandmother created this storm to bring you to our village. She wants to talk to you. So like, whoa, you know, you know, I'm a chemist. I grew up in suburban Connecticut. I went to high school with George W. Bush. You know, this doesn't compute. But you're in this aboriginal village on the east coast of Siberia. There's a big storm out there. There's a warm house in there. You can smell bread baking, you know. If you say, if you, it's not your job at that point to place value judgments on things. And you say, wonderful, we'd love to talk to the grandmother, you know. And then you get ushered in, you get to take out your wet clothes and warm up by a fire and then. You kind of forget that we're supposed to see this grandmother who created this commotion. And the next day, it's like a storm is still raging. We're in a nice warm house. Okay, we're going to go upriver and see the grandmother. Oh, yeah, the grandmother, right. I forgot about her. And we went upriver, and the grandmother goes, you know, okay, now I'm expecting, you know, some kind of fireworks, you know, some – Carlos Castaneda type of thing, and she's going to give us some mantra to, you know, cure all evil. And, well, it was fishing season. She was a Koryak woman. She was cleaning fish, you know. She didn't really have time to talk to us. So I'm going, oh, man, this now what's going on? So just as we're leaving, she grasps me by the elbow, and she's a really short woman, about under five feet. She was almost 100 years old, this short, shriveled up, woman and she grabs me by the elbow and she stares into my eyes with this intensity that's like somewhere between terrifying and scary and and then she looks at my partner Misha and she says come back it will be good if you do and so then the storm ends we paddle away and I say Misha what do you think about this invitation and he says this is a shaman who was born during the reign of Tsar Nicholas II in essentially Stone Age existence. If she wants us to come back, we have to drop everything in our lives, everything, careers, jobs, money, attachments, and go spend some time with this woman. And and I look at him, I go, yeah, this is what we have to do. And so Misha and I spent the better part of the next five years on this you know, replying to this one simple statement, come back, it will be good if you do. So, John, then you did go back to Siberia, and if I recall correctly, you had a serious pelvis injury. And then all kinds of things happened. I got hurt, and I got healed, and then I said, oh, man, you healed me. No, I didn't heal you. The raven got healed you. Now I'm really in trouble. You know, I'm way over my head here. Okay, well, I want to thank Kutcha. Okay, well, you have to eat the Amanita mushroom and go to the other world and talk to Kutcha the raven. Okay, okay, so I eat the Amanita mushroom and I go to the other world and I get scared and so on and so forth. And at each level, I was unable to make the spirit journey in the Koryak way. I am, after all, a Westerner. And then finally, Mulanot and my Koryak friends said, look, John, you're not a good traveler in the spirit world. You've been unable to make the journey. But no worries. You can make the journey in the real world. And we want you to, you and Misha, to walk across the tundra and you'll get cold and you'll get hungry and you'll get frostbitten and you'll get tired and strung out. 
And you're going to make this journey and you're going to end up in the other world. And we talked about that earlier in the interview, that this is a journey to the spirit world. And I've gotten some flack for starting to say this. You know, John's gotten soft. He's become too much of a hippie, whatever. But I think in one way or another, it's something we have to recognize. Again, the Ellesmere journey, in a way, it was like, it was a recognition that the hardest of physical journeys can be also a spiritual spiritual journey, is a journey. So this whole five years in Siberia, it actually made me stronger physically, being able to do things that I hadn't done before and couldn't do before, but it put me in this spiritual communication with nature that the shaman had led me towards. That's so great, John. I love it. You talked about that when I interviewed you a few years ago, and I'll never get tired of that story. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and that's all, uh, you know, as a little bit of gross commercialization, that whole story is written in my book, The Raven's Gift. So when you walked across the tundra, you were able to enter the other world by pushing all the limits and, 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 and pushing yourself to, to the point where you were close to death? Well, I mean, yes, on the Ellesmere trip, actually, I pushed myself to the point where when we completed the journey, we finished the journey, 104 days, 1,485 miles, finished, done, living in a warm house, take a shower, and 36 hours later, my body shut down metabolically, and I came very close to dying. It was, I had a take a life flight to Ottawa to jumpstart me. But I think more than the fatigue is you become part of nature and nature starts talking to you and you have these experiences. So the the journey in one sense was to thank Kutcha, the raven. But things happen along the way. So, for example... We're in this world of Koryak reindeer herders spread out over the tundra, and we wanted to visit this one group of herders. We meet this old lady who's living out there in the tundra all by herself. She's 70, 75, who knows? And she's living on the tundra all by herself in this um, small structure. And we say, we want to go um, see these these people that we've been hearing about. And she says, well, follow this river follow this uh, river upstream for a while until you see the magic mountain and then take the right-hand fork. And you go, well, you know, could you give me the GPS coordinates or something? You know, I mean, like, we're going to go until we see the magic. That's the directions. You know, that's our map. (laughs) And we go, oh, my gosh. So we start walking up this river, and, and there's lots of forks, lots of tributaries coming in, and each one... You go, okay, is, you see Magic Mountain around here? And Misha's a European like myself. He's a European-Russian. Uh, that doesn't feel like a Magic Mountain. Okay. And then you go to the next fork and, is that a Magic Mountain? Nah. And you go along and then finally you reach a place and we say, yeah, you know, this feels like a Magic Mountain. Let's turn right. And we started navigating like this. And when you're doing this, you... I mean, we had a GPS and we carried a compass, but it wasn't going to do us any good. So once you start interacting with nature in this way, in not just the physical reality of nature, but the spirit of the natural places that you're with, then it changes, it changes things. And in the, then at the end of that trip, you know, we go on and on and on and on. And I go, well, this is all fine and dandy. You know, I'm changing my perception, but I still haven't gotten to thank Kutcha. And then right at the end of the trip, as we were finally leaving the tundra, a raven comes and it flies overhead. It comes, we see it coming all the way up the valley, this big, huge monster raven flying just steadily towards us, big wing beats. And we watch it come up this valley. It was 
this blue-gray light uh, on the snow and the ice, and it gets to us and it stops and hovers overhead and tilts its wings and kind of lowers like a helicopter until it's just inches above my outstretched hand, and I have my hand up, and it's just hovering like a helicopter right above me. Okay, that happened. That's a fact. Now, you you can tell your own story about this. You can say, well, it was begging for food or it was a coincidence or whatever. But after having living, lived with this shaman woman, after having hunted and traveled with the Koryak people, and knowing that I set out because Kutcha healed me of my injured pelvis and I set out to talk to Kutcha, I make up my own story. And I say, that was Kutcha. That wasn't any old plain garden variety raven. And Kutcha was there to accept my thanks. And then once you start living like that, you know, some people can call you a crackpot. That's fine. That's just, that's your prerogative. But you find, I've found that in those times since then, regularly, not every day, but I don't know, once a year, once every two or three years, you have an experience with a wild animal that goes beyond the normal. You see a wolf, the wolf runs away. That's what wolves normally do when you see a wolf. I see a wolf on the far ridge. I look at it through my binos. It sees me. It's out of here. Okay. But then when Boomer and I were on Ellesmere, we saw a wolf, and it came up, and it slept three or four feet from our tent and spent the night with us and looked into our tent and sat down and communicated. So now we have a choice. Was that wolf begging for food? Was it a coincidence? Was it thinking about eating us and then deterred because it smelled our gun? Or You can make up any story. But after traveling with the indigenous people, after talking to Kutcha, I say, no, that was the spirit wolf. And the spirit wolf had a message for us about this journey. And then it becomes you have to kind of go into the dream world to, uh, to figure out what that message is. And then, of course, it's my own opinion. And, again, other people can roll their eyes and walk away, you know, and say, okay, we've heard enough of this guy. Or you can, you can think anything you want, but I go into the dream world and I try to figure out what, what was that wolf trying to tell me. John, such a pleasure to have you in the studio. You're definitely <laughs> one of my heroes. And just I really appreciate you being here. Well, I'll, Mandel, it's great to be here. Thank you. I would like to play one more song, but before we end the show, could you please give Missoulians three adventure tips? Okay. I would say the three adventure tips are situational awareness, situational awareness, and situational awareness. The Look, my wife died in an avalanche. And why did she die? Because she didn't read the snow correctly that day. When you're doing adventuring, if you're a basketball player and you hit 50% from the floor, you're in the NBA and you get a $100 million a year. Uh, when you're an adventurer, you have to have a lifetime batting average of 1,000. You can't ever miss. And it's all about awareness. And that's where the physical hold car, the cold, hard, macho imperative to stay alive molds into the spiritual because you stay alive by being intensely aware of the snow, that layer of weakness in the snowpack, that storm. We talked about this earlier. Um, and you, by being spiritually connected to the environment, that sharpens that observation. Thank you, John. <laughs> what Grateful Dead song would you like to end the show with? Okay, let's go with trucking. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Namaste. You've been listening to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to collecting 
sound effects, and interviews from the most remote locations around the planet. If you dig the show, please subscribe on iTunes and check out traillesstraveled.net to view pictures, read biographies, and suggest an adventurer for the show. I would like to thank my guest for this week, my good friend and extraordinary adventurer, John Turk. John has written over 29 books, many of them science books, many of them adventure tales. He's a phenomenal storyteller, an amazing person who has circumnavigated Ellesmere Island, paddled around Cape Horn, paddled from Japan up the western Siberian coast towards Alaska. He's walked across the Siberian tundra and much, much more. For more information, please go ahead and check out his website, johnturk.net. Follow The Trail Less Traveled on Facebook to watch the show as it is recorded on location around the world. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and it's my goal for the show to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, and also to provide adventure information and inspiration for your next trek. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded in Missoula, Montana, the Missoula Broadcasting Company or on location around the world in order for me to find these adventurers and talk to them in their natural habitat. My adventure tip this week is to protect your ears, especially if you are a surfer, kayaker, or overall water enthusiast. Plug your ears, especially if you're traveling in an airplane. Trust me, I've seen a doctor in almost every country I've visited because of ear infections. They're not fun. Well, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week's adventure, please get outside and shred the gnar. Because, as you know, the gnar simply cannot shred itself.